0: prophets that we read about in the Bible not only spoke about what God had told them to say, but often God told them to go and do various activities through which God spoke. So today's reading is about, you might have guessed, Jeremiah who God told to go and hang out in a store. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me And I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: It's possible to have something that you think is perfect. It is as it should be and then see this thing, whatever it may be, disappear. A relationship, a career, financial security, a home. It collapses, it's crushed by circumstances, by someone else's foolishness, maybe by your own decision making. And something you thought was and could have remained so beautiful is gone. As in the words we sang, and I sang most of them, I couldn't get them all in. Broken nights, broken days, broken leaves on broken trees, broken treaties, broken vows, broken hands on a broken plow. Speaking of beautiful and broken things, here's a picture for you this morning of this young man. Well, it's supposed to be a real handsome picture of a guy named David Garrett. David Garrett, uh, I told you about him some 10 years ago. He's a German musician, and he is a violinist. And he is proof positive that the Celtic women and our own Matt Miller are not the only beautiful people that play fiddle or violin. He was a model as well, paying himself through school. And he went from being a pudgy uh, adolescent playing with the London Philharmonic at 10, 11, 12 years old to being a tattooed 20-year-old rebellious fiddle player to today being a near-middle-aged virtuoso, fantastic musician. A few years ago, he had finished a show in London, and he grabbed his fiddle, his violin, and headed for the back door to meet his family for dinner. And when he reached the top of the stairs, he slipped and fell all the way down that flight of stairs with his violin, And when he got to the bottom of that staircase, he had a broken ankle and needed a couple stitches. But worse than any of that was his fiddle, his violin, had broken his fall all the way down those stairs. It was a 230-year-old Italian masterpiece crafted by Guadagnini. He bought the violin for 510,000 euros. And when he got to the bottom of the stairs, it was in 510,000 pieces. Well, at first he was crushed, as crushed as the violin. But then he noticed that all of his music was suddenly selling for more money than it had before because no one would ever hear music from that violin again. And then he realized, hey, you know, it could have been worse. I could have broken my neck. All I have is a broken ankle. It saved me. And I have insurance on it. It will pay off. But the best thing was, after that instrument was destroyed, he was given given, a replacement instrument, a Stradivarius, that cost three times the amount of his original instrument. And he was quick to say that he would fall down the stairs again if he had to. <laughs> Sometimes when things break, they can't be replaced. Sometimes when things break, it's the opportunity for something new and better to emerge and to be born. That's the approach today I've chosen with our text from the prophet Jeremiah. Anna set it up so perfectly as she always does. I do not give notes to Anna. She just comes up here and speaks from her little research and it's almost always perfectly in line. But God said to Jeremiah, go down to the potter's shop and I will speak to you there. And so God gives these instructions. Jeremiah follows it. And Jeremiah says, I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Now, for full disclosure, I admit that when I turned to the lectionary this week and found this reading for the day, about the potter's wheel. The first thing I thought of was the movie Ghost. I admit it. <laughs> Starring Demi Moore and the late Patrick Swayze. They're sitting at the potter's wheel, you know, unchained melody. Oh, my love. It's playing and it gets all gooey and stuff. And uh, maybe talking about that today will spring it from my mind so that I can forget it. What made it worse is when I said to Garrett this week, I can't get this scene from Ghost out of my mind. He said, and I quote, Yeah, I I don't really remember that movie. I was just a kid. That's why his projector is broken right now. This is no romantic Hollywood fantasy film here in Jeremiah. It's a practical tangible illustration given to Jeremiah so he can see what happens to broken things. They break, but they can also be remade. Jeremiah lived about 600 years before the time of Jesus. It's a long time ago, and it was during one of the more chaotic times in Jewish history. And to say that is saying a lot because they've had a lot of chaotic times. The Jewish people have faced four major extermination events in their history. Number one, they were enslaved in Egypt, and it was Moses, the great liberator, who God rose up to deliver them from slavery and lead them to the promised land. A second event is the one in which Jeremiah finds himself in, where the Assyrians and the Babylonians, world empires at the time, rise up in the east and roll into the Middle East and all but destroy the nation. The third happened right after Jesus' day. The Romans sieged Jerusalem, destroyed the city, scattered the people to the wind, and the one most familiar to us in the 20th century, the Holocaust, the German attempt to exterminate all Jews around the world. Those are the four major events. There have been many minor ones that that the Jews faced. Jeremiah is living during that second one. To be able to speak to him would be like speaking to or interviewing a Holocaust survivor today. Jeremiah grew up in a little village outside the capital of Jerusalem. He saw the Babylonians under their great king Nebuchadnezzar rise. All of his family had been priests and temple workers. They were part of the the religious establishment. But Jeremiah did not fit that vocation. He had the skills, but his calling was different. He would not be the priest who would comfort and pastor and encourage the people He would take the parallel path, that of the prophet. There are two great rails within the Jewish faith, all faith for that matter. You have to have the priest, he or she that maintains the institution, that keeps order, that provides explanations and answers questions. It is an essential vocation to any faith. But you must also have the prophet. He or she is the agitator the protester, the dissenting vote, the minority reporter. He or she pushes the establishment away from its comfort and its laziness. The prophet warns people, provokes people, doesn't comfort others, disturbs others. And these two roles are twisted and tangled together in all faiths and in all traditions because both are needed. And at certain times, one is more needed than the other. So we arrive at Jeremiah The prophet, not the priest. Babylon was coming over the horizon like a horde of vultures. They would pick the landscape clean. So the priestly voice of comfort was a misguided voice. The people needed someone to compassionately but forcefully call them to change their ways. And that's what Jeremiah did. And though he didn't always enjoy that role... He found it inescapable. It was Jeremiah who said, it is like a fire shut up, do you know the rest of it, in my bones. He couldn't stop himself from warning the people. And we find Jeremiah to be lonely, to be conflicted, to be angry at those he was preaching to, angry at God that God had given him this role to play. He was brave and confrontational. He was also very emotional and sensitive. He was impulsive, falling back on the tirade at times, begging God to just smite everybody and start over because everything was broken. And then we find him patient and pleading with the people for decades, decades. It wasn't easy being Jeremiah. And if we need any more proof of that, When Nebuchadnezzar and his forces finally rolled into Jerusalem, a large contingent of the Jews fled to Egypt again to hide. And Jeremiah went with them because he saw as his vocation, this this, this calling to be with the people and continue to plead with them to do what was right. And they grew so disgusted and tired of his constant preaching that they stoned him to death. After all those decades, he was an old man by then. They could no longer say that he hadn't told them the truth because he had. But they just couldn't take it anymore. Their shame, how they had rejected him and thus rejected God, and he was removed. He gave his life, quite literally, for his people. You take him, Jeremiah, with Isaiah, and you have the two great writing prophets of the Old Testament. Even though Jeremiah did not see his work come to fruition, God still used him. What a great lesson for all of us. We may die in the dark, not knowing the full culmination of what our lives have been about. N.T. Wright uses the example of a great cathedral. He says the architect has drawn up these plans, and the architect is the only one privy to the big picture that he envisions. But he passes on his instructions to those who are working for him. Teams of masons and carpenters and artists and carvers do their work on their particular task. In quoting right, he says, One shapes stones for a particular tower. Another carves delicate patterns. Another works on gargoyles. Another is making statues of saints, martyrs, kings, or queens. They are vaguely aware that others are getting on with their tasks and doing their work. And when they finish with their stones and their statues, they hand them over without necessarily knowing where they will fit into the final structure. And because it takes centuries to build a cathedral... Most of them die without ever seeing their contribution to the whole. What an example that is. And it's here, I think, that the big work that the architect is doing meets your broken things and your broken life. The great architect who wills to build something beyond our imagination something that no eye had seen, no ear has heard, something that has not entered into the mind of men and women, that builder has ideas about putting back together the shattered pieces of our lives. If we will allow it. If you will not resist it. If you will let the hurting do its work. If you will be a good steward of, Of your pain, if you will receive the hard grace that can turn we lumps of clay, these old chunks of coal, into better images of ourselves. As the Lord said to Jeremiah, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. God seeks not to destroy you, but to recreate you. The breaking is for the purpose of being reformed, renewal. God never seeks to harm us, but God will use our hurts to reshape us if we are willing. And if we're unwilling, we end up being, in the literal sense of the word, cracked pots, busted, unusable, leaky. If I handed the microphone over today and I asked people to come up here and to bear witness to the times in their lives where they suffered some terrible setback, some crushing defeat, some completely shattering event, every person could step up here to this stage and tell a story. If you live long enough, you're going to have stories to tell about how everything went wrong. What? But there would also be stories among those told of what was thought to be the worst possible thing that could happen at the worst possible time, but that happening ended up being a grace sent from heaven, a blessing disguised as a disappointment. Not every time, but enough times that we would have to admit that the pulverizing grinding, breaking moments of life are meant to break us open to new possibilities. Some of you are married today to a person that you couldn't imagine life without, and you would not be with that person without the disastrous relationships that preceded it. Am I right? Some of you live here in this beautiful place. You have a life that you now enjoy because the life you had somewhere else fell apart. Some of you are in careers that you love, not because you planned it that way, but because you had what you had always hoped and dreamed of doing not work out. You were squashed, you were squeezed. You were worked over, worked out, and worked down into the dust. You had to endure the wheel and the kiln, the shattering and the fire. You are different because of all these things, but you are also better for it. You let the suffering do its work. This isn't a feel good life improvement talk, it's the way of maturity. It's how life works. It's how spirituality works. It's a constant theme in the New Testament as well. Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, dies, it cannot bear much fruit. It has to go into the dirt and be crushed for life to erupt from it. James says, the testing of your faith produces endurance that you may be mature, lacking nothing. Simon Peter says the trials of faith are as fire testing and purifying gold. And your faith is far more valuable than gold. And then an epic text in Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I plead with you to give yourself to God as living and holy sacrifices, the kind that God accepts. If you'd gone to the Jerusalem temple when it was still standing and you went for worship, they offered these animals on the altar. It wasn't like an altar you see in a church. It was a fire box with a grid on top of it, burning coals. And they would offer the animal on that altar. I'd love to go to church there. It would smell like brisket and burnt ends all the time. I mean, think about that. Mm, so good to be in, I mean, I don't know how you held a crowd because everybody's thinking about lunch and trying to get out the door. That's the image that, that Paul is giving. You're a sacrifice, but a, you're a living sacrifice. And here's the thing about being a living sacrifice. When the knife gets close and the fire gets hot, we tend to crawl off the altar because it hurts. We slide off the potter's wheel, we seek a place more comfortable, we run from, or we medicate our pain, and we are left with ourselves, our failures, our addictions, our regrets, our broken, unusable selves, all in just a little willing time in the potter's hands could change everything, if we're willing. It's a dramatic example, but paraphrasing Flannery O'Connor She said, we need large and startling pictures because we're all almost blind. This woman named Kay Wilson, and she is a British-born Israeli citizen who was terribly attacked a decade ago in the West Bank. Her co-traveler was murdered by the men who left her for dead as well. But she didn't die. 13 stab wounds, 30 broken bones. And she found a way to get up on her feet, and singing somewhere over the rainbow in her mind, she walked a half a mile for help. She went through everything you might expect after that ordeal, what any of us would go through. Survivor's guilt, her friend had died, she had not. Anxiety attacks, PTSD. Sleepless nights, nightmares, hospitalization, treatment by an assortment of physicians and psychiatrists, rabbis. All these years later, though, she has done more than recover. She is thriving. She speaks to audiences all over the world about, quote, her survival, hoping to dispel hatred, whether toward Arabs or Jews. I refuse to hold every single Palestinian, Arab, or Muslim accountable for the heinous deeds of two savages. She says, and her life is one showcased by a new category of science. It's called P-T-G, post-traumatic growth. With the right perspective and the right care, more and more survivors of tragedy are finding ways to grow, to flourish, to change, and to do so profoundly. In another example of modern research catching up with ancient wisdom, those working in this field recognize that it all comes down to a decision. When everything comes falling apart, thrivers, not just survivors, thrivers let the suffering do its work. And every such thriver has a fivefold experience. If I had a slide, I'd show it to you, but I'll tell you about it. Number one, a renewed appreciation of life. They realize after a tragedy that life is fragile and life is precious, and you better make the most of it. Number two, a focus on their relationships. It's the people that we love and who love us, not all this other stuff that we are chasing after. Number three, new possibilities emerge. Thrivers find out that they can try and do some things that they never thought possible. They didn't have the courage before. But having survived what they have survived, they'll try anything. Four, the discovery of personal strength. They had said, oh, I could never live through something like that. Then they are subjected to it and discover, I did live through something like that. And they find within them something they did not No, they had. And again, these are scientists. The fifth one. Every person who thrived in the aftermath of trauma had experienced some kind of profound spiritual conversion. God had not abandoned them. God had met them in their sufferings. Now... Do you have to go through a traumatic attack or a near-death experience to grow? Of course not. All you have to do is decide. Will I resist with all of my might when my plans and my ideas and my hopes and my life falls apart? Or will I let the potter's wheel turn, remaking me in the process? In the words of Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor and the world's renowned expert on resilience, He says this. Everything can be taken from a man or a woman. Everything but one thing. The last of the human freedoms is this. To choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. Even as clay in the potter's hands. God has still given it to us to choose how we will respond to the pain and suffering of life.